0: words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, everybody. My name is Jonathan Warren Pagan. I'm one of the priests here at Emmanuel. I want to welcome all of you to Emmanuel. Special welcome to you if you're a guest. I'm just so glad to be with you on this third Sunday of Advent. This is one of my favorite Sundays of the entire church calendar. I know I say that like every time, right? I'm like, I'm like Christ the King, that's like my favorite Sunday in the church year. I just, it's hard to pick one. You know what I mean? They're just greatest hits kind of thing. Um, but you may have noticed, you know, as I was talking to the kids, like there's something different about the Advent wreath this week. There's this pink candle, and that's because we call this Sunday Gaudete Sunday, which is a kind of a fancy Latin word that means rejoice. It's the rejoice Sunday. And the, the pink candle is there to mark or commemorate the presence of joy in our midst. This is a Sunday in Advent that's devoted to joy. And you can see it there in our gospel reading today. I know if you were listening, it came out really clearly. John the Baptist describes himself as the bridegroom's best man. And he says he's full of joy. He rejoices when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And then he says, that joy is mine and it is now complete. I always feel like it's this paradox on God Sunday. Every single year it happens. And I'm always like, it's a little bit of a paradox. We're turning to John the Baptist to interpret the meaning of joy for us. It's like, this guy? Because John's not jolly, right? John is like, he made a mistake by inviting John to your holiday party. He's gonna show up in his hair shirt made of camel hair. And if he's not fasting, which he probably is, he's not gonna eat your peanut brittle. He's gonna eat like locusts and honey, like a Kirsten, grasshoppers and honey, Right? and he's just generally going to be weird and a drag, and he's going to judge you for drinking the eggnog. It's not a great invite. (laughs) Jesus actually, you know, he points this out. Like, I think it's kind of a joke. Jesus is actually really funny. A lot of times our translations don't bring out how funny Jesus is, but he's constantly kind of cracking jokes, and he loves to party, right? So he said in Matthew 11, he's describing John the Baptist, and he says, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he's got a demon. But the Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you call him a drunken, drunkard and a glutton and a friend of sinners. Actually, kind of sounds like Jesus is the one you want at your holiday party, right? Isn't he who, who we should go to when we're looking to understand the meaning of joy? Like, that's true enough, actually. As Dallas Willard says that God is the happiest being in the universe. Sin, death, and the devil can do nothing to shake the eternal joy and delight that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have in one another and in sharing the fullness of that life that is in the Godhead with all of us. God is the happiest being in the whole universe. But it's like a little bit too much of a Sunday school answer, right? You know, like you notice with the kids this morning, I was like, like, what's the answer? You all know it. You didn't know anything else, but you know this one. What's the answer? Jesus, right? It's always Jesus if it's like, who's the happiest person in the world? Jesus, right? It's going to be Jesus but it's just a little bit too much of a Sunday school answer. And I love that our lectionary always takes us instead to John the Baptist. Because again, if you're gonna say, who are the top five people to illustrate joy for us in the New Testament? There's no way John's on that list. Like, definitely not. And here's why I think the lectionary is wise though in taking us to John. Because more than anyone besides Jesus himself, John the Baptist illustrates the paradoxical character of joy in the New Testament. The fact is that this word joy or gladness in Greek kara is something different than what we typically think of when we hear the word joy or rejoice. Like the Bible lifts this word from ordinary experience and infuses it with new meaning. In the New Testament, joy or gladness is not reducible to pleasure or to like transcendent, transportive, ecstatic experience. In fact, it's something that can and, in fact, definitely does coexist with the presence of great pain and disappointment and sorrow in our lives. It does that in the life of John the Baptist, right? We'll look at that in just a moment. But this is not some kind of like Orwellian doublespeak, right? Like the Ministry of Truth in 1984, it indoctrinates people with this slogan, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. The New Testament is not saying something like joy is misery, gladness is death, pleasure is pain. It's not doing that. In our ordinary life, joy occurs when we experience this intense satisfaction or feeling of fittingness or rightness about what is happening in our lives. It's this feeling of resonance or attunement or harmony with the world. On Thursday night, I went to the opening night of Rain and Flannery's musical theater performance. They didn't know I was going to talk about this, but I'm going to. I didn't even ask permission, but I felt this incredible satisfaction and pride and delight. And I was in tears because I was looking at them doing something that required bravery and skill and endurance and practice and cooperation with others. So I was so joyful. And then two nights ago, I went with my man, Jordan. Where'd he go? Where'd you go, Jordan? You got to be sitting somewhere in here. Oh, there he is all the way in the back. My man, Jordan Hurst right there, who's been leading worship with us periodically here at Emmanuel. Everybody say, hi, Jordan. Yeah, my man Jordan and I went to see Explosions in the Sky a couple of nights ago at the Moody Theater. If you like explosions, you're probably jealous right now. But uh, it's really hard to describe the music that they make if you've never heard them. They describe their songs as cathartic mini symphonies. I think that's probably the closest that can be said about their music if you haven't heard it before. It gives you the flavor of it. But the feeling I had watching them perform these epic, crescendoing, sonically dense and intricately complex masterpieces can only be described as joy. And these ordinary moments of transcendence, they really are joyful. The New Testament isn't saying, actually, that's not joy. You're misunderstanding it. What the New Testament is saying is that joy can be deepened, though. Joy has depths which it is not possible to know without union and communion with Jesus Christ. Ordinary joy can be taken away from you. It can be lost through tragedy and betrayal. The joy of Jesus is permanent unshakable, and eternal. In fact, ordinary joy participates in this denser and more resilient joy. The fact that we can experience joy in these lesser moments of, trans, kind of ordinary transcendence is a clue to us about what the real nature of joy is. It's a participation, and it's meant to lead us into that denser and more resilient joy. It's like a distant echo of the deeper joy that is at the heart of everything that is. And it's meant to draw us further up and farther in into the joy that is shared between the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we have communion with Jesus, there is no pain and there is no loss that is so great that it can overcome the joy that we experience through Him. Because we are connected forever and indissolubly with the source and the foundation of everything that exists. In Him, All things hold together. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter one. And if we're connected with that, we're connected with the source of everything that has ever been created. Dallas Willard says that if we have this interpersonal communion with Jesus, then the universe is a perfectly safe place to be despite all its dangers. As Wendell Berry puts it in his poem, Mad Farmer Liberation Front, I take note that Kester brought this poem up when he preached to us a few months ago. He says, we should be joyful that we have considered all the facts. If we have this joy, then it makes sense to let go of our attempts to create the conditions of joy for ourselves. We don't have to. We don't have to grasp. We don't have to acquire status or possessions or recognition for ourselves. We already have them in Jesus Christ. We don't need to do that because we already have the one thing necessary. I don't know if you caught that illusion in our gospel reading today. Jesus says... All you need is the one thing necessary. And John says, the one thing necessary comes from heaven. And I've received it. When we see John saying at the end of this passage, I must decrease and he must increase. Those are the words of someone whose cup has been filled to overflowing with laughter and gladness with true and eternal joy. He can decrease in the same way that Simeon does, meeting Jesus in this old age after a lifetime of waiting for the Messiah. Now, Lord, let your servant depart in peace for these eyes of mine have seen the Savior whom you prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the nations and the joy and the glory of your people Israel. We say that every single night in evening prayer. If you pray evening prayer, you'll pray that prayer over and over again and it will find its way into your very being. That's the joy that John is experiencing. It is a deep satisfaction that comes from being nourished and filled with good things, a contentment and a delight and a freedom that comes from being known and accepted and declared worthy in the deepest, most wordless places of wounding and vulnerability in your being. Are you coming here today with that kind of wound that you can't even articulate? You don't know why you're miserable. Jesus is the joy that you need in the core of your being. Because that is the only thing that will lift you out of that. The only thing that will give you a permanence and an eternal quality to the joy you experience. The Catholic theologian Aidan Nichols says that the whole of the New Testament is just saturated with this idea that joy can be expanded through communion with Jesus so that it can never be taken away. He says this the New Testament is a unity. Because the men who wrote it had all been bowled over by the same thing, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They had all experienced a dimension of joy that was not possible prior to the coming of Christ. What they're all saying throughout each of these texts that compose the New Testament is this. We are testifying to what we have experienced. And what we have experienced is a joy that no trial and no loss and no difficulty can touch. Sometimes when we read the Gospels, we can kind of think that they've just been thrown together a little bit, like, right? They're just kind of like random memories about things Jesus said and stories he told, like if it was your journal, but it, was, it got published, you know what I mean? Like, but that's actually not at all what the Gospels are. The, the Gospels are these magnificent literary compositions. Each one of the Gospel writers was this kind of great storyteller and none more so than John the Divine, the one who's traditionally attributed to the authorship of the Gospel of John. He's this magnificent storyteller, the placement of every story matters. The framing and the structure of every story matters. Every detail he includes and everyone he excludes matters. It's really important. Every literary device he employs, it matters. He's composing a story, a powerful story that's meant to move in the way that good rhetoric moves. And so when we read this speech of John, we should be on the lookout for how John the Divine, not John the Baptist, is framing John the Baptist's speech here so that it draws out this deeper dimension to joy that John the Baptist is speaking about. And then, as this passage opens, we get all of these really interesting details. In verse 22, it says that Jesus and the disciples, his apprentices, are out baptizing in the Judean countryside, and John the Baptist and his disciples are out there doing the same thing. And there's this kind of like chest-thumping, competitive dispute that breaks out. It's clear from this verse, like in this kind of terse description, that everybody in this story thinks that baptism accomplishes something, right? So so I'm not trying to like start any like, uh, you know, Intercommunion battles right now or anything like that, but like just the straightforward conviction of this passage is that baptism accomplishes something. Otherwise, this dispute makes literally no sense, right? It's a dispute about the purification. It's a dispute about what actually does baptism accomplish, and whose is more powerful, right? Mine's more powerful. I'm a disciple of John, right? What I got. Is way better than what you got over there, Jewish purification rituals, right? And then there's this other kind of dimension of it that opens up between the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of Jesus. Like, is Jesus' baptism more powerful or is ours more powerful? Because they're all going over there to Jesus. Seems like Jesus' baptism is doing something that ours doesn't, right? It's this kind of, like, it's, it's a recognition implicitly there in the story itself that baptism accomplishes something. That's actually why this little detail is included. Like, otherwise, it doesn't make sense. That's why John was baptizing in Anon near Salim, where it says there was plenty of water, right? The water matters. John is saying this material dimension and the fact that there's a lot of water here, that's a good reason to baptize there rather than somewhere else, because this water is central to the purification that this ritual brings. And so, again, there's this dispute that breaks out between the Jewish authorities, the Jewish disciples who are, who are engaging in a kind of ceremonial washing and the disciples of John the Baptist who are engaging in a ceremonial washing. And then as they come to John, this fresh dimension of the controversy breaks out. They say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And John responds, yeah, that's right. You got it. Go to him. Be like the rest of the crowds who are going to him because this mission is done. He must increase. I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. There's this wonderful, wonderful artistic tradition uh, in, in the medieval church that develops of depicting John the Baptist at the crucifixion. And he's pointing to the cross. Rain, could you move to the next slide? There it is. Okay, this is a famous one from the later part of the 15th century by Matthias Grunewald. Um, and, and so in this artistic uh kind of tradition what's happening is this is you're seeing just a panel of it kind of like blown out a little bit but to the left here is the crucifixion jesus on the cross and that's john the baptist pointing to jesus and look at all of the symbolism in this right you've got john the baptist right at his feet what's at his feet go ahead and shout it out you can see it's the lamb of god right the lamb of god and what is what is underneath the lamb there's a chalice catching what blood right so there's this lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the blood of Jesus that is powerful to take away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus' baptism actually is more powerful, because his blood is covering us in our baptism that we receive from him. Then you've got John the Baptist holding a book of the prophets. John the Baptist is the greatest of the prophets, right? We heard that even in the collect, right, today, that you sent your servants the prophets, of whom John the Baptist is the greatest. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 that no person born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is literally in the age prior to the Messianic age, the age that Jesus himself inaugurates. There is no one who is greater than John the Baptist. He is the greatest of all the prophets. So here he is holding the book of prophets that he sums up and he like perfects. He is the chief prophet. Right. But what is he doing? What is he doing? He's pointing away from himself. And Grunewald depicts this. Look at how giant his hand is relative to the rest of his body. Right. It's his hand is like, I don't know, like it's just enormous in terms of the like, comparison with the rest of his body, because what it's saying is this is his mission. His whole mission is to point away from himself as a prophet to the one who is coming, who will take away the sin of the world. And in fact, if you look at it back there, you can, you can just barely see it. There's almost like, it's a faint writing right behind John on the upper left. you see it? In Latin, it says, he must increase and I must decrease. That's what John is doing with his whole life, right? Um, Soren Kierkegaard said that John the Baptist gesticulated with his whole existence, He just is pointing away from himself with everything that he is doing. He says, my baptism came from heaven, but it was sort of an interim measure. It was like a half-calf baptism, as it were, right? The full calf with a shot of espresso is now here. There's no more need for me. I mean, what are you doing drinking half-calf now, people? I came for one purpose, John says, to prepare the way for the Lord, who comes with a truly cleansing baptism from above. And now he's here. John is quaking for joy at the realization of this thing that Israel has been waiting for for centuries and that he has been waiting for for his whole life. It's finally here. Jesus is here. The king is here to restore everything, to set everything to rights, to clear the decks of everything that stands in the way of the kingdom of God extending itself across the world. Now, earlier in this chapter, Jesus says to the Pharisee Nicodemus that to be saved, a person must be born again From above by water and the Spirit. He's talking about the power of the baptism that he brings. A baptism that aids not only in repentance, but a baptism that brings with it the cleansing fire of the Holy Spirit. If you want to understand John the Baptist's joy in this passage, you have to see what he sees. He's the prophet, right? He's the prophet of prophets. He's the greatest of all the prophets. And when Jesus says that there's no one greater than John the Baptist, right? He's saying, that's because he represents this whole prophetic tradition calling Israel back to its fundamental mission, to its fundamental identity. John does that better than anybody. And yet, and yet, in this age that is now defined by the baptism of Jesus of being baptized into Jesus, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says that in Matthew 11. John sees that, right? That's what he sees through his prophetic vision. And he's not jealous. He's not feeling any sour grapes at all because his whole internal calculus about himself and his place in the universe has just been wrecked by joy. He's been renewed head to toe. And all he cares about now is that he gets to be a witness to the kingdom of God that is rushing in through Jesus. Jesus. There's this kind of like disputed passage in Matthew 11 after he describes John the Baptist, where Jesus says in verse 12, either from the time of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven has been taken by force, or it could say the kingdom of heaven has been forcing its way in. And actually, if you just look at the Greek, it straightforwardly says the latter. I think the translators are just uncomfortable with like how agentic, how purposive, how indeed violent the kingdom of heaven is breaking in right? So N.T. writes, right, no slouch himself, right? He's pretty good at reading Greek, I would say. Here's how he translated in in his translation of the New Testament. He says, from the time of John the Baptist, the kingdom of heaven has been forcing its way in, and men of force are trying to grab it. John has been trying to get Israel ready for Jesus and his kingdom with a baptism more more, more purifying than anything that has heretofore been available, But with Jesus, the kingdom is actually forcing its way in through Jesus's ministry, through the baptism with power and with the Holy Spirit that he brings to be baptized with Christ's baptism is to be engulfed by the fire of the kingdom's advance, but not consumed like the bush through which God spoke to Moses. John the Baptist is rejoicing to see the kingdom advancing upon the world in this way He says not just I'm full of joy. He actually says my joy is overflowing. He's overflowing with joy at the knowledge of this reality. There is like real connection and real intimacy with God that's made possible here. There is real power, real victory over sin and death and the devil here. There is a joy here which is abundant and real and sturdy and eternal here that John is a witness to. There's one more feature of this passage that I want us to look at together. John the Divine, the author of the gospel, adds this curious detail here in verse 24. He says, all of this took place before John was put in prison. It's like, why do you feel the need to say that, John the Divine? Like, isn't that obvious? John doesn't leave prison once he goes into prison. He dies there by being beheaded, right? When he goes to prison, there's no coming out again. So why would John the divine, put this detail about John the Baptist in this passage. I think it's to highlight one more time the paradoxical quality of this joy that Jesus brings. John the Baptist can be joyful, though he has considered the facts. He knows what coming up against Herod is gonna do. His destiny is to diminish and become less because Jesus' star is rising. And because he tells the truth, he knows that he will be put in prison and will lose his head. And Salome will carry it out on a platter. He knows that he will die a criminal's death, even though he did nothing wrong. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus in more than one way. Not only does he prepare the way of the Lord by preaching repentance, he prepares the way of the Lord by showing what kind of death Jesus is going to die. The death of a criminal, though he did nothing wrong. The best man does not get treated better than the bridegroom, just like Jesus promises that his disciples are not going to get treated any better than the rabbi. But despite all the facts, John's cup is running over. He has seen the Messiah. He has heard the voice of the bridegroom, and it's enough. Jesus is enough. No matter what happens to John, and in worldly terms, right, John's future is very bleak. Nothing can steal his joy. He is completely safe in the universe. And that same joy that John knows is on offer to every single one of us in this room today. In fact, that grace, that joy is more available to all of us who are in this room today than it was to John. He only got to look forward to it, right? He saw it coming on the scene. Every single one of us, if you've been baptized in this room, you have literally experienced everything that John looked forward to. In his ministry, we live on the other side of the messianic age. Jesus has died. He has been resurrected. He has ascended to heaven. He has poured out his spirit upon us with power and included us in his baptism. The kingdom of heaven has broken in and it is forcefully advancing among all of us here today. St. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that every one of us who has received the baptism of Jesus has been given all the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. Everything that Jesus came to do is available to every single one of us in this room. We just need to cultivate it by attending to Jesus, by listening to his voice speaking to us in scripture, by receiving him in all of the means that he gave us to experience him. In his sacraments, right? First baptism, but also the Eucharist. And in the fellowship and in the company of the saints, as we minister to one another, as we sit with one another in grief and in joy, and as we pour ourselves out on behalf of one another and sacrifice towards, Jesus becomes visible. His joy grows in us. Amen? Amen? Martin Luther used to say, whenever he was despondent, said baptizata sum but I am baptized because all the power that we could ever need to be joyful in Christ is he is here in baptism in concentrated form. The new life, the abundant life of the resurrection is really given to us there. And it is also really given to us in the Eucharist. Christ is present there too. His joy and his abundance are on offer there. And so if you're willing to receive him in this meal, he is also willing to come to you. He will be present to you. He promises. Every time we receive this meal together in Jesus' name, he is present by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if that's where you are today, if you want to know the joy of union and communion with Jesus, the joy that overcomes the world, you come, feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.